Keith Weed, Chief Marketing and Communications Officer at Unilever said, leading brands and agencies have known for many years that more creative work delivers better results than safe and rational advertising. What has been exciting in more recent times is to see the emerging proof of this, the hard evidence that creative work is more memorable, more effective, and more able to drive overall business performance. Hi, I'm your host, Connor Byrne, and welcome back to That's What I Call Marketing, the podcast where you will hear from the leading lights in the marketing world and listen to their unique stories. That quote from Keith Weed was actually about my guest today, and today I'm joined by James Herman, author of The Case for Creativity, The Creative Effectiveness Code, and his new book, Future Demand. James is an award-winning planning director, and in 2013, he was named the world's number one strategic planner. In 2014, James founded Previously Unavailable, chasing his passion for helping innovative companies use insightful strategic thinking to create products and brands that become sustainably successful. He chose the name Previously Unavailable simply because he loves bringing new things into the world. Today, we talk about the importance of asking really interesting questions to get to a great springboard for creative teams but also how digging into insights can help create new brands and products like the New Zealand brand of bread that was too big for your toaster called Mackenzie High Country Bread and all the ways that came to life in the market. We dig into understanding and sensing the timing as it relates to cultural moments, grappling with AI tools and leaning into the natural disposition and exposure those younger than us have to them. We dig deep into the case for creativity and why award-winning work actually matters and the importance for startups, VCs and boards to think about brand building to create future demand. And we talk about so much more. So let's get right into it. James, thanks for joining me on That's What I Call Marketing. I can't not say this is take two because we had technical difficulties already. So <laughs> I thought this yeah, internet thing was going to take off. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's a pleasure to be with you a second time, Cotter. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, uh, we got cut off at the point where I was asking you about your your path, first of all, that you were named in 2013 as the world's number one planning director, but it didn't kind of start that way you were in IT and I'm right that you were we working in an agency or doing work in an agency and you're like this this looks like fun yeah the way yeah so I did I did start as as an IT guy so I was the person who like you know back in the late 90s um, would install you know your antivirus updates and crawl around underneath your desk unplugging ethernet cables and that sort of stuff which was don't get me wrong was amazing um, but just not quite as awesome as um as planning advertising so yeah i was i worked in an i worked in a big agency in london gray um okay. and uh, i did a, sh- a really short um contract there for three months that was my first taste of the uh, the advertising world and then when i returned to new zealand uh i got a job in an ad agency here and uh and that was when i really kind of discovered that what they were doing was a lot more interesting than what i was doing and that i um I perhaps could have made better vocational choices earlier on in my career. <laughs> but actually, do you know, it is interesting because when I, I meet people um, for this podcast, I find that people have kind of almost like they fall into two categories. One is, you know, when I was six, I remember seeing this ad on TV and I knew that's what I wanted to be. And then there's others like you and, and me that, you know, can fall 
fall into it um, a little bit. Did someone take a kind of a, a chance on you to give you that opportunity? Yeah, I mean, I think I feel like uh, a few chances were kind of taken on me um, in in those early days. So certainly there were um, there were people working in the creative department um, of the agency that I was the IT guy in who became really good friends of mine and who kind of just, you know, were generous enough to kind of invite me into their process in, in various okay. ways, which was weird to do with an IT person, right? Um, <laughs> and, and, and then one of the partners at the agency, um, I think also just sort of, I don't know, was bemused, <laughs> um, but kind of thought that maybe, you know, um, uh, may, maybe I could, um, w- w- would be okay to sort of ha- have a go at the uh, on the tools, and so yeah, there was one of the partners there who was who was really supportive and kind of s- stuck up for me a bit, which was amazing. And um, and then yeah, the first person that gave me a job as a planner, which was um, which was the head of another agency, um, again, kind of you know really took a chance um, because I had really no um, you know no prior experience or or sort of skills or probably talent um at that point either so um <laughs> so um so that was so that was a good that, so that was good too so yeah i mean it definitely i'm the product of lots of people kind of being kind enough to sort of let me have a go at, at, at doing what i you know ended up loving doing for most of my life but you're obviously then and i wouldn't know but look at I guess you were really curious. There must have been some like just a sense of curiosity that they picked up from you because, you know, you, they weren't just going, look, you're having your tea. <laughs> Come and join us. You look no. bored. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's definitely true. And I, I mean, I think that's kind of, of that's, that's something which is generally t- true of very good planners is that they are very curious. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's a, it, it, it is almost, uh, the art of sort of harnessing your curiosity. Um, I think planning is about, um, obviously it's about being curious about human nature uh, and and about how people relate to brands. Um, but also I think um, I, I found a lot of joy in, you know, we talk about advertising being, uh, uh, you know, in, in large part about storytelling. Um mm. And I always thought that the, um, the that you know I was most happy as as a planner when I was kind of story finding, um, which was okay. kind of going into a brand or a, a project or whatever, and and trying to find like sniff out where's the most interesting story here, right? Mm. And and kind of asking questions and and trying to ask really interesting questions to find where there was something that was you know, yeah, just really interesting or unique or unusual in a really positive way. That could be a springboard for the creative people to work from and do something really interesting from. So I think, you know, that that curiosity, that that sort of, I don't know, that innate enjoyment of going into yeah. a situation and sort of ferreting around and trying to find what is the kind of interesting bit strategically is, um, is yeah, very much what I enjoy. It's almost like those, um, like reminds me of like a, not a kid's book, but like, um, you know, that kind of detective type 
books. Remember the ones they used to get? And it's like, you know, go here for page, page seven for this to happen the story, page yeah. six for that. And it was kind of, yeah. but it's almost like that. It's like, where will I go? And where is it yeah. going to take me that I'm going to find this interesting? Was there like a an aha moment or project that you worked on in those early years that you were like, I've like, it's coming together. Like this is, this is phenomenal. I'm, I'm good at this. The work is good because of my work. Was there any moment that you look yeah. back on and. Yeah, probably the first, um, yeah, the first really, I don't know, like really formative thing I think that I was involved with, um, as a, as a, you know, wee baby planner at the, at the first agency where I worked in the planning department. Uh, it was a project for uh, a company here in New Zealand called Goodman Fielder, who are a, they make um, like bread and milk and, and, okay. and grocery staples like that. And they wanted to um, create a new, a new brand for the bread, the packaged bread aisle uh, here in New Zealand. Um, and so it was really interesting because it was a, it was a brand creation and, and sort of product creation job as much as it was an advertising job. So it was the, it was the first time that I got to be involved with sort of creating something to be advertised and then creating the advertising. Um, and, and I think like where my, you know, I guess where, uh, I I think I've always seen the role of, of, strategy and insight and creativity, you know, is, is sure that applies to advertising, but can it apply more deeply than that to the actual product or the actual experience? Um, and so we set out to create this. I'll tell you the whole story because it actually re- is really quite a cool story. So we had, we, we were, um, we, we were in the agency um, and we had this, this meeting one morning with the client and they brought in their, their chief baker um, who was this kind of big, big burly man from you know this the south island who who baked all the bread and he um and he'd brought some uh some test products in so okay. they'd just been baking some they'd been like mucking around doing some prototypes of some interesting sorts of bread and so he had like a bread that had like cranberries in it and a bread that had walnuts and some kind of banana bread thing and sort of all of these interesting breads right for us to try and just sort of you know, jam around on. And then he, um, and then lastly, he pulled up out this really big kind of loaf of, of white bread. So if you imagine a loaf, that's like maybe one and a half times as wide as a normal loaf okay. and, um, and this big, this big loaf and he, he plonks it down on the table and he sort of proudly says it's so big, it won't fit in your toaster. And, um, and, and he had a name for it. He, he called it hungry man bread. Um, <laughs> and, and it was kind of like it was almost it was almost a joke, like. Um, but but I think in the agency we kind of, me and my boss, I think, kind of went. There's something really interesting about bread that's too big to fit in your toaster. There's something about like a generosity of mm. that, which is kind of which maybe you know uh, makes you feel like that's what loaves of bread would have been before the modern age when we made them. Yeah. kind of. Small enough to fit in a toaster, <laughs> and um, <coughs> and small enough to fit on a you know on a big corporate P and L, and and so and and so we kind of like so we started this project because he, my boss, he he, um, he 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 ran the agency, but he also worked in a um, he had a sheep station down on the south in the South Island of New Zealand that he went back to for the weekends, um, okay. and 
And so he was like, oh, that, that, that sheep station was in a part of New Zealand called Mackenzie Country. And he was like, oh, it's kind of, it feels like it's from, you know, the, you know, it's, it's the bread that the farmers would have eaten in Mackenzie Country in the 1800s. And so, so anyway, then, uh, so we, we were kind of jamming on that and the bread ended up being called Mackenzie. Um, oh, okay. Mackenzie High Country bread. Um, and, and it was, you know, two wides fit in your toaster. It was a big loaf. Um, and it was, um, it, 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 all of the stories started to come together when I was reading the diaries of a woman called Lady Barker who had moved to New Zealand in the early 1800s from Britain. Um, and she was a kind of a, um, she was like the mum on the sheep station. So she looked after, she worked on the sheep station, looked after all of like the farmers um, and the, the shepherds and, you know, all of the, the people on the farm. And yeah. she would bake for them and serve them their lunch and all that kind of stuff. And she wrote all these diaries about her life. And um, and there was a baker down the road, and they made this four pound loaf, which was this giant loaf of bread. And um, and she sort of just in reading those books, I uh, kind of built up this really rich picture of this time and this place, yeah. And the role of the role of food and sort of essential food like bread within that that world. And so we crafted this whole brand, which really was this whole kind of you know this idea of Mackenzie Country and the the kind of eighteen hundreds. Um, and we wrapped the bread in brown paper, so it wasn't in plastic. And that was a really, okay. that was kind of a major packaging innovation, really, in two thousand and three mm. or whenever this was. Um, and uh, and 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 it was this beautiful, beautiful thing that really kind of, I mean, it was it was a proper, it was a proper new brand that had kind yeah. of like a point of view and it had a differentiated product. And then we did like beautiful advertising, so we'd print the, we'd do newspaper inserts that were on brown paper rather than newspaper. Um, okay. and, uh, and, and we'd tell the story of kind of the Mackenzie high country in the 1800s and the things that happened on the, um, on the sheep station. And it was just, a, it was really amazing. And it was one of the most successful new product launches, um, ever in New Zealand at that point in, in, in the supermarkets and like really took people's imaginations. And so that was, I guess, my kind of the first one where I sort of, you know, learnt, learnt my craft a little bit and, um, and also just learnt the value of applying that craft, um, to the advertising, but also trying to apply it to things that are deeper than that, which is, which is what I tend to do more of today rather than the, the advertising side of things. Yeah. That's incredible. Bringing something to life like that. And you can, you know, and it's, what's really interesting there is actually as you're telling that story, I could almost see how it could go and, one of or many di directions but one is that like you know the heritage you know around why it would why it makes sense but also you know there could be another one that's kind of pushing into you know we need bigger toasters right <laughs> you know like and have fun with it yeah. but it's it's just really interesting yeah. that uh and you can see why the but the heritage really you know people are drawn to that right because then it, you know and again it depends what's going on in the world at that moment right at certain moments in time people really need that in their life yeah absolutely i mean it was the right yeah it was the right time for it and i don't know what would happen if you made it and released it today whether it would be as successful but it certainly yeah it is a lot about i mean that's another thing about planning i think and about um about creativity is like sort of being able to sense when the time is right for something because ideas do have their time and yeah you know i think good creative people have a really good sort of sense of yeah this feels like the right time for this idea um and uh and so yeah i think that's part of sort of the the art and the magic of what we do 
Yeah, and I, it is that, isn't it? It is that art, because um, everyone does want there to be science, and we get onto a bit of that, right? Because there's lots to talk about there. But I mean, there is art to it. There is gut feel to it. There is being close to what's going on. And I, you know, from working with some amazing creative people that I've worked with, they're so connected to just so many different things that are happening in the world. Right. You know, I think about mm. someone like Doug Cameron and DCX in New York, but he's a planner, but he's very creative and like, he's just connected. He just knows, he just has this kind of amazing ability to absorb so much of what's going on and then kind yeah. of tap into it deeper. Right. When he thinks something's, um, something's happening, right. The kind of the, yeah. cultural strategy piece yeah yeah absolutely it's like super fascinating i think how you kind of yeah tie things into culture in the right way or you know either either sort of you know be a creator of culture and and that you put you know into the world some sort of intervention that actually leads culture which is really cool yeah. um or just kind of you know being relevant to what's going on and being a you know, brands being a, a relevant and positive and construction, uh, constructive participant in uh, in culture, I think is kind of equally valuable. And so, yeah, but sort of understanding, having your head around what the culture actually is and um, and what's going on in it and what the vibe is and being able yeah. to understand the nuances. I think often, like, I find myself now, you know, I'm 45 now, so, you know, I'm not, I'm not super old or anything, but I do definitely see that there are people who I work with who are younger than me who have a much better innate understanding of what's going on out there in the world. Um, I think you do kind of, I think most people do lose that a little bit as they get older. Yeah. Um, some people are really able to kind of keep hold of it, which I really admire. But but I think generally speaking, like when you're a bit younger, you are a bit more just attuned to kind of the vibe of what's going on. Yeah. And I think that, I think that's, really interesting as well that like being surrounded by people of different generations that can that can pull you in different directions is really really important you know because it's not all we certainly don't have all have it right and you know people of a younger generation don't mm -hmm. but they're they're seeing things differently and what is their their world worldview because you know kids now you know kids nowadays <laughs> I, I just I, say. Oh. <laughs> but you know just their ability to <laughs> To use technology, like, you know what I mean? I mean, I, I struggle with some yeah. of the, the simple technology. Now, I don't invest enough time in it, but, you know, I'm kind of like going, I, I can't use your PlayStation. Yeah. <laughs> like just, yeah. But, you know, it, it's totally. just being surrounded by that and you kind of just see it, see the world from, from that perspective. And, and then equally important is the perspective of people who struggle even more so than I do with the technology and, you know, yeah. want to throw their phone out the window thinking of my dad. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like just this week, you know, the, the twenty-somethings in our company have been um, have been playing around with all of the AI tools that have kind of obviously emerged really yeah. rapidly over the last few weeks. Um, and and it's really interesting because a they can you know their their aptitude for quickly learning new technologies is is much higher because they've just you know they've just been born with all of this right yeah. in the way that we weren't so that's really cool but also their sense of kind of what's cool and what's not and how to use those technologies in ways that aren't um you know cu culturally or ethically sort of questionable i think there's a there's a real strong sort of sense of that and so yeah definitely in in our little world in our company like i'm increasingly kind of following their lead on on stuff like that and trying to provide some sort of strategic framework around all of yeah. that that makes it that makes it really kind of commercially 
um, strong, but, but definitely those, those more, yeah, th- those choices that are more kind of creative or gut or kind of, yeah, nuanced or whatever, like, yeah, increasingly it's kind of, I think we need to kind of, yeah, learn from, learn from the young. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. Um, I want to talk about. We I touched there about um, kind of art and science. Um, and in was it twenty eleven? You released the case for creativity, yep. and that was based yeah. on a lot of the IPA data. It was was it like probably controversial or certainly new ideas in there at the time. What kind of drove you to to put that together and write that? actually wasn't based on any IPA data until really the end of the writing process. And so um, what was amazing is that I was doing, um, I was doing a lot of that research at the same time as Peter Field was doing his um, study with the IPA, the link between creativity and effectiveness. And so we sort of came together at the end and, and sort of found each other and, you know, and the work that he had done was amazing, obviously. And so that made it into the book in a big way. Um, but but it was almost like a cherry on a really great cherry on the on the top at the end of the, the process. Um, but um, the reason that I wrote the book, so um, so when I got, I, I became head of planning at Colenso in two thousand and seven, um, and I was the first head of planning the agency had ever had. So they'd been going since nineteen sixty nine. Um, You know, we're a fantastic agency, um, had had planners in the agency, but for one reason or another, had just never had a a head of planning. So I was the first one. Um, And so I got the sort of, you know, the privilege, I guess, of thinking about what should planning in this place be? You know, what's the role of it? Um, And what what are we here to do? And how are we going to do that in in the best way? And so um, my, my sort of early thinking was, you know, I think fundamentally planning the, the role of it um, is to, you know, is to help ensure that the work is as effective as it can possibly be. Right. Um, and so, um, and, and you know, it, advertising can be made without planners, right? Um, and, yeah. and that's one thing that, you know, one of the first books I read was um, John Steele's book, Um Truth lies in advertising, and and then that he makes a very good point that you know advertising doesn't need planners. Um, we're we're kind of like, you know, we're either like really helpful in the process, or we're just in the way. Um, and 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 I think it's really good to approach planning with that humility of that, that we're not actually really required. Um, and so therefore, you think, okay, well, how am I going to make a contribution? which is going to justify me being, you know, another voice around this table. Um, and and how, how am I going to do the things that are going to help make the creative work even more effective than it would be if I, if I and, and my team were here? Um, and so then you start to think about, well, what is effectiveness and what are the constituent factors of effectiveness and kind of, you know, how do you make the work more effective? And, and Colenso had always been a very creatively, you know, driven agency. Um, and and so they really believed in the work um, and they really believed in the power of creativity and that creativity was a force for, you know, commercial effectiveness. And so I was kind of like, okay, that's great. Um, they believe that. I need to know then as a planner, like, is that right? Um, should we be, um, should we as a planning department working to make the work more effective, should we be driving towards sort of creative award-winning style uh, advertising? 
um, or should we be sort of leaving that to the creative people and really just focusing more on the sort of fundamentals of the strategy and not worrying about whether it leads to particularly creative work or not? So it started with a real question, which was kind of like, you know, for me was quite a fundamental one about what I was doing, but also for our client community, you know, we, we were at that, at that point, we were a classic agency in that we had, you know, a couple of really creative clients that kind of really got it. And a bunch of clients who were like, we're a bit skeptical about all of these awards in your, um, in your reception area. And you seem to spend a lot of time trying to win awards and you seem to have a bit more energy for that than you do for some of the, you know, the sort of day-to-day stuff on our business. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so, and so, you know, they, some of them were skeptical and some of them were very, very skeptical, like really didn't believe that, that doing creative award-winning work was at all um, in keeping with, with, you know, doing the right thing for their brands and their business. And so, so it was sort of all of that, that, that made me kind of think, well, you know, can we, can we find out whether create whether creativity is effective? Like, is there a way of solving this problem? And so I started actually by doing a, a study where I compared a, agencies who'd won lots of creative awards with agencies that hadn't and compared their effectiveness award-winning performance and uh, and found that the agencies that were more creative um, tended to win many more creative, uh, sorry, effectiveness awards than, um, than agencies who were less creative. Um, I also did a study of uh, Can Lions, um, a marketer of the year uh, or creative marketer of the year companies um, from 1999 through to at that point, 2011, and we've updated it um, since. But uh, but looked at the stock market performance of the world's most creative advertisers, and and it was always really high. Around you know their right. stock market performance was much better than their historical average or the S and P 500 in the periods that they were creating all of that very uh, creative advertising. So I had a couple of interesting data points um, there to kind of work from, and then I just went out and looked in all of the journals and for all of the academic research and 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 uh, into creativity and effectiveness, of which there's, there, there was quite a bit, um, but it right. was really hidden away in journals that, you know, frankly, nobody reads. Um, <laughs> and so I kind of dug all, out, out all of that and looked at what all of that said. And what was the, the amazing thing really was that um, in doing that, I genuinely went in not knowing whether I was going to find that creative creative work was more effective as effective less effective than than less creative work i was very open-minded about it i wasn't going and trying to prove that creativity was was more effective you know hypothesis that like this should ideally this lands this way connor we didn't know like no one knew yeah back then Uh, like honestly it was that it was that great it was that um it was like really no one knew like you had creative people who were wonderfully eloquent sort of advocates of creativity who could talk to you about the power of creativity in a way that you made you fall in love with it. And then there were also, there were lots of dissenting voices on the other side. There were lots of senior marketing people who said, you know, we've, we've done this, you know, we did this campaign that was very creative and it did nothing for our business. And we did this one that, you know, the creatives didn't like, but it was the grand effie winner and you know and we'd have this kind of you know the industry just had this debate on an anecdotal mm. basis you know here's a creative campaign that didn't work well here's one that did you know and back and forth like that and no one had really taken a like a helicopter view if we look at all of the data i mean literally no one had so so i really didn't know what i was going to find and i was and if i'd found that creative work was less effective 
I'm not sure I would have written a book about that, to be honest. <laughs> um, <ask. laughs> yeah, I, like I don't, I don't know whether I would have written a book. I mean, the fascinating thing was that looking at it all, and I really did go to the ends of the earth to find every piece of research that had ever been done into the subject. And honestly, every single one showed not just a small, but a very large um, difference in effectiveness of campaigns with creative award-winning quality. So original, engaging, well-crafted, the types of campaigns that win creative awards are vastly more likely to be very effective than campaigns that don't have those qualities. And so that was amazing because I think, you know, there were enough dissenting voices for if creativity isn't that effective, for there at least to have been one study somewhere yeah. that reached that conclusion and, and none have at all. And so at the end of all of that, then Peter did his wonderful study 11 times as, as efficient um, uh, as non-award winning work. And that was really just capped it all off. And it was like, well, that's, that's the book done. I mean, it's pretty, it's an open and shut case. Um, as far as I'm concerned, you know, it's, we should absolutely as a planning department be seeking to provide the sorts of briefs or kind of platforms that creatives can do great work from. And so that became really the focus of planning at Colenso was, you know, not just how we're going to get the strategy right. How are we going to get it right in a way that it, it, it is an amazing platform for doing brilliant creative work? And so that, that became the focus. It must have been a very energizing thing, particularly in the, not obviously in the industry, but in that agency. Right here you are as somebody who was digging deep into all this research. And then you're coming back with, I guess, the good news <laughs> and saying, no, this is. And so what we're like that point, we are going to try now even harder to give you, our creative team, even more opportunities to do amazing work. Like, that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. It was super exciting. I mean, it was exciting in a number of ways. So, yes, I mean, I think that, you know, forming a relation, a, a, a really um, healthy, positive, kind of warm, loving friendship between the planning department and the creative department, I think is really super critical. Um, and, and, and by the way, not just planning and creative, obviously the, the production departments and the account service departments all need to have a great relationship with one another. But, but I think often there can be a little bit of, you know, yeah, yeah. disconnects between strategy and creative. Um, and so I was always like, you know, we've got to be like, my view was the creative department is our customer, right? The, the client is the customer of the agency, no doubt, but the creative people are the people who need to take and consume what we as planning produce, right? So they're our customer. Yeah. So we need to be super customer focused, right? We need to understand them. We need to be all about them. We need to kind of be doing stuff that, that when they consume, they go, I love this. You know, that's what being customer focused yeah. is. And so, yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. And so, so it really kind of was all about that. But the other effect, which was a really cool one, you know, one thing that I learned um, in my career definitely was that if you've got clients coming into the agency who they don't really want the same sort of work that you do, um, that you, you want to produce for them. If you get them into a big creative presentation and you sell your heart out on this like amazing piece of creative work that they don't really want, it's it's almost impossible, right? 
It's really hard. And we have these silly stories of Saatchi's in London in the 80s and the suits could sell anything to anyone yeah, and all yeah. that kind of jazz. <laughs> but, but like, actually, do you know what? I don't really buy that. Like, when if, if, if a client really doesn't want what you've got to sell, like, it's just, it's just really hard. So what part of my job became was, like, going around the clients and, and sort of showing them all of this evidence and this research and getting them to buy into the idea that, yeah, if we do really creative work, we're going to be much more effective. So then they would come into the agency and in the brief, they would be asking for the kind of work that we wanted to produce for them, right? right. So they were saying, we want a, we want a campaign that, that's going to win a gold lion. We want a campaign that's going to be really creative. We're, we're, we're with you that we need to be doing really creative work. Then when you come to the creative presentation, it's so easy because they're looking for the same thing that you're looking for. And so selling the work yeah. becomes, you know, that's a far better way of selling the work is getting them to ask for it in the first place than trying to change their minds in a one-hour creative presentation, which is just super hard. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because the degrees of disappointment happen in those moments, right? <laughs> it's just like, you know, yeah. I'm happy. Um, and that's really interesting. And yeah. It's in like, you, you know, you do talk about the awards and there is definitely still... So I was going to actually, yeah, because there still is, I think, some cynicism about awards, right? The actual awards, yep. right? And so yep. how do you how do you kind of address that when people are saying, well, you know, there are awards. You'll, you'll just love your yep. awards. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think there are, uh, I think awards, firstly, I, I would say the awards have a very important place in the advertising and marketing industry. And I say that because they... Um, they do a couple of things. One, they surface for us all of what, what great looks like, right? So we as a marketing advertising community can go on to, you know, the Can Lions Love the Work website and we can select, I just want to see Grand Prix from the last five years, and we can see what the best work in the world looks like. And that's actually very, very helpful as a community to be able to benchmark against the best rather than, you know, if there were no awards, we frankly, we wouldn't really, we wouldn't be able to do that. It would be very hard to ferret out or agree on sort of what was, you know, what best in class looked like. And so I think they fulfilled that important role. I think they also fulfill the important role of giving us a sense of what will be effective in future. So at creative awards, they're, they're almost like innovation and advertising awards really. So they're looking for where have we taken a step forward where have we found a new technique to engage consumers that might be quite, um, at this point in time, might actually be quite, you know, almost too novel to be super effective. But but in like next year and the year after, that technique will probably mature into something that's kind of super, you know, effective and mainstream. So I think they give us a way of constantly moving forward and challenging ourselves to engage consumers in new and better ways continually. Um, and, and I think if we just had effectiveness awards, for example, I think we'd, we'd stay the same. We'd just kind of be doing, you know, what was effective this year. We'd do that again and that would be effective next year and we'd do that again. And gradually we wouldn't actually get any different or better. We'd just do the same things over and over again. So I think creative awards fulfill two really important roles in the industry, um, above and beyond all of the, you know, the stuff that they do for creative people. So they do help with creative people's careers. They are nice to win. It is fun to go to the party and all of that kind of stuff. But I think, you know, the criticisms of all of that stuff and the skepticism around it, I kind of think those things are actually like a pretty small price to pay for 
those positive benefits of awards. Now, the other thing that I would say is I do agree there are too many creative awards in the world. There are so many creative awards programs and they're just everywhere all the time. And, you know, you, you can totally understand how people in other industries look at it and go, why are you just constantly awarding yourselves? You know, I think, I think it would be real. Frankly, I think it would be really healthy to have can lions um, each year, and then to have just a, a you know a local creative award show in whatever your country is, whatever your market is. I think though, I think that combination would do those important jobs of continually moving yeah. us forward and surfacing what is the best. I don't think we need like a you know a hundred different creative global creative award programs. That's probably a little bit silly, but um, but I do think they they fulfil a really important purpose, and we shouldn't have none of them. On that point about creatives, I often like creative folk are often like you know a striker in football, like they're you know when they're scoring goals, they're scoring goals, right? And so that actually the awarding yep. and the it's confidence, like it gives them confidence in in their ability because that's a, like it's a hard job. Like being creative is is very very difficult. So I think you know it it definitely serves that purpose. But I, so there's we're still having the discussion though about the effectiveness of creativity. Like that's still like it's still a topic for debate. Like why? There's kind of the you know there's the rational sort of data. There's all the evidence in the world to support this, and then there's kind of an irrational side where you know if you just fundamentally don't. Uh, kind of understand creativity it's it's very hard to kind of believe that it can be true that it's a really effective thing to do i uh, I think some people have very strong uh, belief systems which are about things other than creativity and marketing despite all of the you know mountains of evidence um that that creativity is the biggest lever that we have in marketing as 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 marketers um and uh, uh, what else do I think? Why it's still a debate? I mean, I th- I still think there is um, there are people that l- that kind of like it's beneficial to take pot shots at creativity a little bit. Um, so, you know, the the research organisations that do creative testing, uh, it's kind of in their it's in their interest commercially to have marketers feel like oh, we shouldn't just trust the agency. You know, we should we should pay for testing research to to just kind of make sure that we're we're doing the right thing, and so I think sometimes discontent is sort of sown um, by those companies right. when it's in their very much in their commercial interests to do so. Um, and so do you think there shouldn't? Do you think there's not there's no place for that creative testing? But do you think it's wasteful? I think predominantly, um, yes, it's ridiculous and destructive. Um, I think um, there there is a scale that ranges from you know the absurd um, to to the pretty good, um, frankly. So I think um, you know if you're reading a script to a group of people um, and asking them whether they like that script and it would make them buy a product, that's just crazy. Like there's just no, there's absolutely no way that that's, that there's anything. If there's anything effective in that besides maybe finding out if it's so if something's so absurdly offensive gonna, yeah <laughs> that, yeah that yeah. you shouldn't do it like maybe may, like maybe um and and so um to um to the pretty good so so i will you know i do um have a go at system one from time to time but they do actually do the the best um version of creative testing where they're not asking people's opinions they're actually observing 
you know, they have their face trace system where they actually observe the kind of expressions on people's face, um, which are a truer kind of proxy for how they're really feeling than, than asking them to explain their feelings. And so, so that's actually, you know, the, the, the sort of the best, the gold standard. Um, yeah. I think most other things are, are, are really quite ropey. And I, I go back to, um, Peter, uh, Peter and Les's, um, evidence in, um, their 2007 work called Marketing in the Era of Accountability. And they, looked at pre-tested campaigns versus non-pre-tested campaigns and the non-pre-tested campaigns were far and away more effective commercially. Yeah. So, so they, what they're really showing there is when we use our, our, our intuition and when we follow our, our own gut or our, our own beliefs about whether a piece of work is good as marketers and agencies, that's a better indication than in brackets, most pre-testing, yeah. um, and uh, and and so I think that was really powerful because like the the alignment of pre-testing metrics, like whether you get a green in a link test, and what actually happens in out there in the real world when the work runs and whether people, you know, whether it grows the brand at all. Sometimes those things can be completely divorced from one another, and uh, and I think we we end up kind of you know I've seen so many marketing departments who. The marketer's job is to get a green on link. Um, it's not yeah. really to sell stuff. It's not really to make you know make work that shifts the business or anything like that. It all becomes it's just a, it's just you know we're just here to try and get a green on a link test. And that's yeah. all our job is. Yeah, and so like, we do and, things and, which link tests like not that people yeah. like <laughs> because people yeah because people react differently and behave differently to any thing we think they will you know behave like i you know i've we've done some amazing work with um through the years with curious industry and brilliant brilliant group um and yet in those groups and even meldrum would would say it when, when we're working he's like you know that that's what they're saying right <laughs> you know so we gotta it's a pinch of salt. and so with advertising and, and creativity you know people oh I, I think this but then they'll behave differently in the real world when it's out there so yeah, I, I, there's certainly a pinch of salt yeah. to to all of it. And totally, totally. God, yeah. One of the one of the things that I find super interesting is is I think our perception of of things like brands or bits yeah. of creativity or whatever is is actually a composite of what we like purely think of something and what we think others think of it. Um, and so when we like, I think that our our relationship with a brand. Um, is partially do we like that brand and partially do we think everyone else like us likes that brand and, and understands it and gets it. And so I would say that those, you know, um, the, like uh, a brand like Heineken, for example, I think did an amazing marketing job over the past 20 years of making sure that the whole world understands and kind of gets what Heineken is and sees it mm -hmm. as a bit more premium and sees it as very high quality and sees it as a little bit cool and all that kind of stuff. And so that, you know, when you're standing in a bar and you order a Heineken, you know that everyone else around you understands what that symbolizes and sort of buys into it. And so that makes it a very easy thing to grab. So then when you're doing testing, I think this applies to kind of most things, by the way, I think yeah. when you, we're doing testing, we're testing how one person sees something. Um, we're not, we don't yet have any of that effect of it being out in the world and people going, Oh, I see other people liking that. Oh, maybe I do like it actually, you know, and that does totally does happen. Right. And so, um, so yeah. I think, 
yeah, it's um, it, it it doesn't any kind of testing doesn't really allow for that those those effects that are such critical effects in, in what we do to kind of play out. Yeah, and actually, it's it, it's in all the steps before that. You know, even the brand or the agency that are actually speaking to potential customers are actually living with them. I spoke to Johnny Cal, who's the CMO of Heineken in USA for for this podcast, and he, you know, when he was in Russia, he was out living with miners seeing how they live to understand that because you're understanding that then you're able to kind of apply it to the brand and what you're trying to achieve. You know what I mean? So that's, yeah. if the work is done yeah. well to that point, you know, yeah. maybe the testing just becomes a tick box exercise, you know, that you just kind of, you know, maybe the board need it. <laughs> yeah. But I think as well, you could go into and live in that mining community and get a real sense for, What's what are the things that culturally, um, sort of pe- the the whole the yeah. group kind of enjoy and like, um, and you get a sense for you know what could we do that not the consumer on their own is going to like, but that this kind of whole culture is going to you know come together around, and I think that's very difficult to link test. And again, you could go back and yeah. do your creative testing with one of those miners, and that person might say, "Oh, I'm not really sure about that," and it gets a red, and and then you produce something that's um. far less effective. Um, and, um, and so, so I think it's kind of like, you know, it's, um, yeah, I could go on forever about the the flaws and creative testing, but, but I do think, you know, to go, go back to your point, um, which is about, you know, if we spend enough time up front in culture and with consumers, we actually make, you know, that leads us to make good choices. And that's absolutely true. And my first boss called that, he had a term for that, which was educating your intuition. Which okay. I thought was a lovely, yeah, nice. a lovely, a lovely phrase, um, and and he just you know that was his counsel to me was like the more time you spend out there with people and in culture, just kind of like not even necessarily like researching them, but just yeah. actually just hanging out with them and kind of observing them, the more your intuition gets educated, and because in at advertising and in life we make we have to make so many intuitive choices all of the time yeah. the the more educated our intuition is the more likely those choices are to be good ones so yeah i think educating our our intuition um, should be the primary you know a primary kind of function of a of a marketing department or an agency and beating leg tests should not be a primary function of marketing departments or ad agencies Right, writing them in my next round of commitments. Um, you can we talk about uh, the latest book, Future Demand? Sure. Okay. If you'd said no, that would have been terrible. <laughs> so, um, this is aimed at my at kind of startups and newer newer businesses thinking about brand building or the role brand building should have for for them. Yeah. Why, totally, why this yes, book? So- um, well, I think we, so. So nine years ago, I left the advertising industry and I started my own company, pre- previously unavailable. It's called, and um, and we're we call ourselves an innovation studio because we work with innovative companies and innovators, um, helping them uh, use kind of strategy and creativity to get the most out of their innovation. Um, and that spans from helping them with innovation strategy um, in the early stages to new product development through to new brand uh, creation and development. And so in that, within that mix, we work, we work with lots of startup and scale-up companies. And, um, and what was interesting going out of advertising and into the world of startups and, and the venture capital community was that they, um, 
you know, they were kind of as skeptical about brand and marketing as those clients were back in the ad world were skeptical about creativity and creative awards. And so I kind of had the same, you know, the same realization that, okay, there's a group of people here who are skeptical, skeptical about this, who believe that brand is actually just like, it's kind of a layer of bullshit that bad companies yeah. put over their, their crap products to, to like basically con people into buying them. Um, yeah. That was really like largely the attitude of a lot of particularly kind of, you know, tech companies and, and really kind of technical founders and very product led organizations was that brand is just this, it's, it's this, um, this veil of, of like just lies and rubbish that you, that you put around something to make to so that people will buy, it, even though it's not very good. And if we just made great products, Right, we wouldn't need. We don't need. need yeah, yeah, the product will sell itself. Yeah, yeah. So I'd show up, and you know, hello, I'm James, and I do brand stuff, and and you know, these companies will be like, oh, nice to meet you, but we don't actually need a liar um to like bullshit about our stuff. Like we've actually, yeah, we've actually made a good product to begin with, and so like people people already like it. They don't need they don't need brand and marketing to make them like it, and so. On one hand, you go, fuck, that's good. Like, we've got a group of people who are actually striving to make useful, valuable, like, decent things and put them into the world, not just churn out rubbish, um, yeah. which, frankly, you know, unfortunately, lots of large companies are, are quite guilty of turning out, you know, pretty average, uh, pretty average products. And that's what creates space for all of the disruptors and the small companies to come in and yeah. do new and better things uh and so um so anyway so on one hand i was like this is awesome we've got people that you know don't want to um you know that don't want to fill the world with with rubbish um but uh, i also have a belief alongside that which is that brand is an amazing amplifier of a great product uh, yeah. it's not a replacement for it um it's an amplifier of it and and so that was very much my kind of going in position was okay you know i think you know, I believe that a company with a good product and a good brand is always going to do better than a company with a good product and a weak brand. Um, so that was my going in position. Then working with them, um, that community over a number of years, um, what became really obvious was that um, was that one of the reasons that companies that were a bit skeptical of brand and marketing didn't want to spend money on it was they they all if you start a new company and you do a good product your growth in the early stages is usually really strong right so yeah. basically if you're a good startup you've you've solved a problem that exists for lots of people in the world and you've been the first to solve it or the first to solve it in the way that you're solving it or whatever and so there's naturally a whole group of people out there who have that problem and are and are willing to purchase a solution from it. They're, for it, they're they're just kind of waiting for someone like you to come along. And so, if you put performance marketing in front of those people and say, you know, we've got the solution to this problem you've always had, then lots of people click on that, and lots of people buy it. So you get this early stage growth, which is really strong growth. And so it looks like we don't need to do like brand and marketing or yeah, that kind yeah. of stuff. We've just created a great product, and everyone wants it. The trouble is that group of people who have uh, what I call pre-existing demand. So there's a group of people that have already had need for the product and they're ready to buy. That's a finite group of people. They, that's not everyone in the world. That's just a kind of a finite group of people. That performance marketing is fantastic at going out and finding for you. So, yeah. But when you run out of that group, when you exhaust that group, it becomes much, much more difficult to find the next 
group of customers, right? So your cost of acquisition goes up, so everything goes your up. performance metrics suffer. Yeah. And, and you suddenly, you know, you're, you're in this stage, which, you know, almost every single startup that we've worked with has faced at some point where they're like, well, growth has slowed. It seems to be more difficult to find customers. What's going on? Um, and so we sort of studied that. Did a piece of work with uh, with Walk and um, and and got some sort of you know all sorts of data from all over the place and and sort of saw that that pattern of sort of early stage growth and then that flattening out and plateauing that was very very common. We looked at what happened within that and basically you know what was happening was that these companies were very very good at marketing to the people that are in the market and ready to buy today. Um, but that's only a small group. Most people in, who buy from a category aren't ready to buy right now, but will come into that category at some point in the next, let's say, two years. And yeah. so what a great brand does is it builds up familiarity and sort of positive emotions towards a brand in the minds of people that will come into the category tomorrow so that when they do come into the category, they gravitate toward our brand and they're more likely to buy it. And so what those startup brands don't tend to do very well at all is build their brands among those people who are going to come into the category um, in uh, you know in the future, um, and that's why they get they sort of hit that plateau. They've they've sort of exhausted all of their demand, and they haven't really introduced themselves or built up any kind of memorability or familiarity with the rest of the market that they now need as customers. But yeah. who are saying, well, I've never heard of you, and uh, I'm not sure if I like you, and so mm, don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And it, um, one of the things I thought when I was, when I was reading through the book is, I mean, all this is true, but I'm a new startup. I've got funding. I've got investors who are looking for my performance, you know, quarter and quarter, probably month on month. How, How are you performing? When I was reading the book, I couldn't help thinking, you know, all the evidence is there you know, brand building for the long term. But are, are investors and VC the problem in that they are demanding results quickly and quarterly? Y- yes. Um, although I don't think they're a problem in the sense that they, that, that they don't listen to good advice, right? Um, so... So I would say the VCs, like the startups, have sort of seen, you know, lots of companies grow really fast in the early stages without much marketing or brand building, right? Um, And so they're going off what they have seen. Um, Also, the venture capital community um, doesn't – there aren't many – there aren't a lot of people like me who sort of go between the venture capital world and the marketing and brand world. Like they're, yeah. they're, they're those two worlds are generally like they're, they're pretty far apart. And so yeah. I think the venture capital community hasn't really had lots of people like me coming in and presenting the evidence to them and telling that story. So, I mean, I would say like we're very involved with the venture capital community here in New Zealand and I mean, yeah, like since Future Demand, like they're they're all thinking about marketing and long-term brand building in a totally different way to how they were before. And they're becoming real advocates of brand. I mean, really? the biggest, you know, the, the two biggest by far VCs in this part of the world are 
now both total advocates for um, for for brand building, not for switching <clears throat> away entirely from driving yeah. short term results. By the way, because it is about doing both of those things, absolutely. Um, but they kind of understand that on a journey. You know, they're going to invest in a company and then maybe 10 years later, it's going to exit and provide them a return. And they want it to get all the way to that 10 year point, um, to that exit point. They don't want startups that start up, go off with a hiss and a roar for two years and then die. Then, you know, that's not optimal for, yeah. um, for, for, for a VC, um, fund. And so they, uh, yeah, they're, they're really coming around to it. So, so yes, I'd say that they, they were a part of the problem for sure, but, um, but they have been amazingly, um, welcoming of of the evidence and the thinking and and really get it okay that's i mean it's it's, it's great to, i mean they're smart people right so it's not it, but it's probably mm. as you say nobody was putting it in front of them in a way that was actually compelling or just actually doing that putting it in front of them and saying look yeah look at this yeah i mean we're ter- as a marketing community we're not very good at marketing marketing and mm-hmm. um and bra- brand does not have a very good brand um and so you know part of Part of my job is marketing, marketing is being a bit of a kind of a marketing science communicator, um, and um, and building the brand of brand, <laughs> and um, and particularly like two people that are commercial, like they are, you know, they're people that care about the hard stuff and are a bit suspicious of the soft stuff. Yeah. What we've been terrible at doing is kind of explaining how brand relates to commercial stuff. Yeah. And so, you know that. So the community around us, and not just VCs, by the way, you know, C-level executives and big corporates are kind of like, you know, their understanding is like we, so we use one kind of marketing to get these people as customers. And then we use this other kind of marketing just to kind of make them feel good about us. I don't really get that. Yeah. Whereas this mental model, which is tied to revenue, you know, (laughs) they're both. (laughs) Whereas the the future demand mental model just makes it super clear that like there's one type of marketing to to get the people that are in the market today to buy from you. And there's another type of marketing to get people who will come into the category later to come to you at that point. So one is about driving your present uh, growth and one is about driving your future growth. Would you like to still be successful in two years time? Most CFOs say, yes, please. I'd like that. And so, uh, and so, yeah, it's just providing, I think the industry with a mental model that makes it easy for people who aren't marketers to kind of understand the value of the different things that we do. Um, maybe we need a rebrand for brand, but that's a whole different thing. Um, <laughs> one of the things you, you you talked about in the book, or like obviously a couple of things, but that I really liked was um, you talked about brand familiar familiarity is better than price or product information. I I thought that was really great because a lot of startups are like you know like we have a great product, tell everyone about the product. Totally, yeah, yeah, and do I mean tell all of the people who are ready to buy right now um tell them about the product absolutely uh, because you know i do this thing when i speak to audiences in the in, in the live um real world um not that you're not a real audience by the way you know what i mean in real life not on a podcast when i'm in front of a group of people um i always do this thing where i say okay can you put up your hand if like right now or in the last two weeks um you've been actively looking for a new mobile phone you've been sort of upgrading your mobile phone and say it's a group of 50 people you know three people will put their hand up and i'll say i'll say okay who put your hand up if you think that in sometime in the next two years you will be actively looking for a new mobile phone and then everyone puts their hands up and that's a demonstration of like there's 
there's existing demand and there's future demand. Um, the existing demand people, actually, if I put a kind of a, you know, a chart comparing the Samsung Galaxy with the iPhone and going yeah. into all of its features and benefits and all of that stuff, like those three people would find that really interesting. They'd be like, yeah. okay, great. Like I'm in this, I'm, I need to make this choice right now. So this is really useful to have this information. Thank you. The other, the other 47 people would, would like, that would just like bore the shit out of them. Yeah, they yeah, they yeah. don't care about any of that. Right. Um, and so that's the difference. Like for that group of people, all we've got to do, uh, frankly, is, is make them a little bit more familiar with our brand, hopefully do something that they kind of makes them like us a little bit. So they just remember us so that then in, you know, September when they come into the category, um, they go, oh, actually, I'm going to check out that brand because I remember. I've got sort of just this residual positive memory of that brand. So I'll go and check out what they're doing. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's just, again, it's just like, it's just playing to the state that people are in, you know, it's yeah. just kind of accepting that when people are in the market, like they don't like, they're not going to be triggered into buying your product by giving, if you give them loads of product information, that's just, you're just yeah. being annoying. Yeah. So true. As, um, it's in Paul Feldwick's book and I can't remember who, who, the quote is attributed to but when tv advertising started and it was like you know tvs were in the middle of the room in the house and it was you know if you're if you're invited into somebody's room be a charming guest you know yeah. and so that's that right it is we still need Absolutely. to be a charming guest and for people to yeah. like us and want us to come back again when they're actually ready to go and do that research totally. and think more about yeah, it yeah absolutely yeah um, you also talk and make the point in the book, which I think is actually really important that a lot of people forget. Brand building is not just advertising. No, it certainly isn't. You know, from a purist point of view, a brand is built by literally every single thing a company does. Um, and so, you know, the, the way that I think of brands, you know, at their best, they're sort of a simple idea at the heart of a business, which is, um, which, which really informs every decision it makes from, how it hires to how it treats those people to what it makes and how it makes it to, you know, all, all of those things which come way before the advertising is ever made. Um, and so a company can be, you know, a, a, a company like, um, you know, there, there are examples of companies that do this incredibly well. Like Patagonia's brand is like a little bit to do with the advertising and an awful lot to yeah. do with a lot of other choices that they make in their business, um, right? Whereas the Coca-Cola brand is is a lot to do with its advertising and, yes. and sort of not that much to do with the other choices. And so it's 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 horses for courses a little bit. Um, but um, but yeah, I think those brands that are really sort of exemplars of their point of view um, are the ones that are you know, the best brands. And the, the other thing that someone raised this point to me the other day, which was actually a really interesting one. They, they said, what's the role of brand building after a brand has suffered reputational damage? So down in this part of the world in Australia, their national um, airline is called Qantas. Mm -hmm. um, Qantas has had a bit of a disastrous last couple of years in terms of dropping the ball on a lot of customer service and customer experience stuff. In, in kind of like a, a, a way that is, you know, that people really don't like. Um, and and at the same time, kind of taking $2 billion in COVID support from the government and paying their executives massive bonuses. And, uh, you know, and, and so it's a really bad look. Now, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
so so they've suffered you know and this has been sort of you know documented they've suffered a lot of reputational damage a lot of damage to their brand right so their brand is much weaker now than it was before now none of that damage has been done by advertising or marketing mm. right it's nothing to do with that um so what that says is if you can do things which are nothing to do with advertising and marketing that can shrink a brand, right? That can, that can damage it and make it worse. Then that tells us that it's not just advertising and marketing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, so I think that's really, I, I do think that's really critical for companies to understand it. It's what we certain, certainly try to bake into, you know, all of the young companies that we work with. It's like, have this really strong point of view and, and don't just think about it as an advertising thing. Think about as, as, you know, how are you going to, orient everything that you do as an organization around this really strong kind of point of view. That's what your brand is. And, and, you know, you'll, you'll build it through marketing, but through everything else that you do. Yeah. Cause, cause everyone who works at a company, I th- the, there's a brand that I really like in the UK called butternut box. And I think everything they do is about the brand, you know, you know, mm. the customer service, their emails, like everything they're doing. And actually that's a really interesting brand because it t- does a lot of the things you talk about, like their price premium, like they're not cheap and they've mm. had to put their prices yeah. up, but like they've retained their customers, but they do everything in, in like the tonality of it is wonderful. Like so, so many great things, but it's all about, you can see it every touch point they have. They're thinking about mm. the brand. Um, so great. The, the last thing I did want to ask, or maybe two last things, but you've an example in the in the book Stolen Rum, which I just thought was a wonderful example of bringing all of this um, kind of together. Can you just tell a little bit about their their story and and why that was such a good example? Yeah, um, definitely. So Stolen, I mean, really interesting, um, really interesting company. So it was the first it was the first time that I was involved with a, a, a startup. Um, so back in 2010, um, the founders, Jamie and Roger, came back from overseas where they'd been an architect and uh, a banker. And, um, and they uh, came back home during the uh, financial crisis, uh, couldn't get jobs, loved rum and wanted to start a rum company. Um, and so they sort of started exploring doing that. Um, and when I <coughs> first met them, um, it was, it was, the two founders and a very good designer um, friend of mine here at New Zealand called Calvin So. And um, and so Calvin and Jamie and Roger had a coffee with me and it was just um, after they'd been told by their lawyers they couldn't call their rum company Sisters, which was the original name they were okay. working on. Um, and uh, and so the sort of the, the search began for a new name for this premium rum product. And I guess, you know, what um, – the challenge that we faced with rum in 2010 was that no one in New Zealand or none of the kind of cool kids in New Zealand liked rum. If you said, you know, do you like rum? People would say, Oh no. Um, it's the kind of thing that kind of like, you know, um, people put in Coca-Cola and drink, you know, as a really crappy kind of crappy booze drink. Um, or it's something they remember drinking as a teenager and then vomiting a lot afterwards because <laughs> um, they, had, they had too much of it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so rum didn't have it. Rum didn't have a very good brand, um, and and so so we we were kind of like, okay, how are we going to? You know, big challenge here is how we get people to um, to to come to the category really of spirit um, as well as to the brand. 
Um, and so we, um, you know, we knew that if you said to people, do you like a mojito? They'd say yes. And we'd say, well, you do like rum. It's just that you like it when it's presented to you in a certain way. Um, and that would kind of blow people away and they'd be like, that's got rum in it. Um, and anyway, so we knew, we had a clue that we had to sort of, sort of serve it in the right way. But then the way that we kind of branded it, I'd been doing a whole lot of reading about the history of rum and, um, and the, the, the history of the spirit is that it was, it's always been on the wrong side of the law. So it's slave trade and rum running in the prohibition and pirates in the Caribbean and dodgy stuff in the Navy. And it's always like rum's always kind of been on the wrong side of the law, which, um, which I loved because I kind of think that for lots of us, like our fondest memories are, are of doing things that we shouldn't really have done. Yeah. Um, and I kind of, <laughs> I kind of like that. I kind of like that insight. Um, and so anyway, well, we in the, in the really early days of this company, when we were, when the guys were just kind of, you know, they 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 just made the liquid. Um, Calvin was working on the bottle designs. We're just sort of really early stages, uh, and so Calvin needs to take sisters off the bottle design and put another word on the bottle. Um, and he puts stolen as kind of like half just a placeholder. Really, it's just yeah. like a similar shape to the word sisters. And um, and he puts that on the bottle and. And I'm just like, that is so completely rum, right? That is such like a great name for a rum brand because it, it respects and honors this amazing tradition of rum being on the wrong side of the law. So, so we all just fell in love with that name immediately. And that was the new name for, um, for stolen. And that became the whole ethic of the company was like, well, we're going to do things that you kind of shouldn't do. You know, yeah. we're going to be a provocative and disruptive, not for the sake of being so, but to honor the history and the heritage of this great spirit. Um, and so that's why we, you know, we did, we did, you know, we did silly things like we stole other brands, um, taglines, like, you know, <laughs> just, just drink it, um, and drink different and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, we did, um, cool stuff like when we went to uh we we wanted we made this product for just for bartenders it was an overproof rum um and uh and you couldn't actually import it into australia because there was this regulation that we you know you're not allowed to import spirits of this alcohol quantity that have been only been aged for this long it's one of these arcane things yeah so um so instead what we did was we said to people hey can you um you can you can take this rum in your carry on on the plane, and you can take it to a bar and give it to the bar people. That's all completely legal. We just can't like officially import it and sell it. So we got all of these people to mule. They are called mules, and they mulled the rum over to Australia and took it to a bar and gave it to a barman, and the barman would make them a drink and uh, from it. And um, and they would have this lovely experience, and the bartenders in Australia were introduced to the stolen brand in a way that was very much about getting around the rules, right, and being on the wrong side of the, being on the wrong side of the rules. And so, so it sort of informed like all of the things that we did as a company, and and made us like a really noisy and quickly quite iconic brand um, in right. this part of the world, and um, and led to you know global expansion, and then getting acquired by a private equity company in Chicago, and. So it was a really cool, it was, you know, a really cool journey of being able to, you know, create a brand, really bake that into the company and the products and sort of everything that we did. Um, and, um, and yeah, take it, take it to the States and, and get it kind of, um, yeah, get it eventually taken off our hands. <laughs> Stolen. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I love that story. And it goes like, look, it goes to show the power of the, the brand. And to your early point, it's not all about the advertising. It's, you know, how it lives and, 
you know how how it kind of behaves in in the world. Um, yeah. So we have gone way over time. You've been incredibly generous of your time, James. Yeah, Thank no you problem. so much. I've I've really enjoyed this. You are doing some work with Wark. I know you're doing um, and yeah. you're writing articles, but you're also doing. I don't know if the course is the right word for, for it, but you're, yeah. you're doing a lot of work with them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I've had a long, um, long and, and, and wonderful relationship with Walk um, and their sister company, Can Lions. Um, and, uh, and yeah, the thing that we're doing this year uh, is a program called the Master of Advertising Effectiveness. So it's a six week online uh, course, which teaches uh, you as a marketer or advertising person, all of the kind of the fundamental principles that we've heard come out of, you know, Walk and the IPA and the Ehrenberg Bass Institute and all of these sort of great thinkers and, and researchers around the world studying this. And we've all heard all of the headlines, but, you know, to, to actually learn all of that stuff in a way that allows us to put it all together yeah. and apply it to the work that we're doing, this is the program that really does that. So it, it really brings all of that thinking together in a way that makes it very sort of applicable and so, um, so we actually started the program last year, ran five cohorts down here in um, New Zealand, Australia, with a few kind of people from around the world. That went really well. People absolutely loved the program. And so then um, Walk were um, uh, keen to partner with us on taking that further, taking that global. So we've done a complete replatforming of the program. It looks amazing. It kind of it's a it's a really um, it's a really lovely thing. And so it's made to be taken alongside your full time job. So it's kind of like a couple of half our modules, video modules a week that you watch at your leisure, a live session with me once every couple of weeks. It's pretty easy to do, um, but it will make you a much better um, kind of uh, a, a much better planner of advertising, whether that's as a strategic planner or just as a marketer or an, advertor, an agency person who's involved in the planning and creation of advertising. Yeah, well, I'm, I mean, I'm a huge fan of work, I think, but what they have and what they deliver is phenomenal. And I think then that combined what you're, what we just talked about here, right, is is like scratching the surface of of the knowledge, I guess, you're imparting in, in that course. So I think it certainly, yes, would encourage people to do that. And and if they're not, um, this sounds like it's an ad for work, but if they're not <laughs> to work, I, honestly, it's it's phenomenal. So listen, best of luck with that. Best of luck with... Um, Thank you your future demand uh, book and all the other work that you have out in the world. And and thanks, because I think what you're doing is actually really important. And, you know, you taking the time that you have to invest in doing all that research and digging into the data and putting it together in a way that's consumable, understandable, shareable with, you know, C-suite and investors is really important. And so, so thank you for that. Appreciate, appreciate all, all that you do. Thanks, man. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, um, I just love doing it. So it's, it's far from a chore, but yeah, so it's, it's wonderful to, um, to, to hear you say that. Thank you. You James's work, but I didn't truly understand or know the full story behind how the case for creativity came about. Clearly now it is something we all talk about and hopefully there is a widely held view that it is a key business driver. But when James started out on this work, he was digging deep to find the evidence, collect it and see if there was a case to be made, and then using that evidence to help make great work. And now he's building on that work with Future Demand and helping not just companies he works with, but other startups that believe in brand building and helping them by talking to VCs and boards about this. 
James talked today about planning with humility. And despite the incredible breadth and depth of work James has carried out, he is full of humility. He's building a belief system that is very important for our industry. And it was a real pleasure to speak with him today. If you want to find out more from James, you can, of course, buy his books, but also check out his Masters of Advertising Effectiveness, www.nae.academy. And he has done a ton of great work with Wark also. So definitely worth checking that out. So that is it for this episode. Thanks for listening to That's What I Call Marketing. If you did enjoy it, please do share and add comments with your feedback. You can get in touch and find all previous episodes on that's what I call marketing.com. Follow us on Instagram on that's what I call marketing, on Twitter at that's underscore marketing. And now you can actually watch our episodes back on YouTube. And yes, you guessed it, you'll find us on that's what I call marketing on YouTube. So from me, Connor Byrne, until the next episode, thanks for listening or watching and take care.